And then at a later date, we'll look at chapter 2 and 3. But the reason I uh, got the whole book to be read out is I'm not always 100% sure if everybody reads the Minor Prophets or whether it's on your daily reading list. And it's certainly a book that um, can easily escape us in the Minor Prophets. So to give whole context of what we're going to look at tonight, we now know the ending. And maybe now we know the ending, there will be more weight in the beginning of Habakkuk. So if you have your Bibles, um, turn back again to Habakkuk uh, chapter 1. And we're going to just step by step walk our way through this passage, <clears throat> learning a little bit more about it. Uh, I must say, I, I've just realized by my notes that uh, I've used a slightly different Bible translation. Um, but it will still have the same meaning, but just a few of the words might be different. So just to make you aware of that. So verse 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. This is a clear line of who Habakkuk is. Habakkuk is a prophet. Now what is a prophet? A prophet is simply a spokesperson for God. Someone that God will use to deliver a message to deliver his will, to deliver his judgment, to, to use as his mouthpiece to the people that God will direct the prophet to. Now, there's little else we actually know about Habakkuk. Uh, we know the book roughly dates about 600 years before Christ, and there's some kind of contention to whether it's a wee bit older, a wee bit younger, but roughly we're looking at 600 years before the birth of Christ. And we also know that potentially that Habakkuk was a Levite. Now, how do we know this? In chapter 3, you would probably notice there was a slight difference in tone, a slightly different way of writing. And it's because it's written as a song. It's written as a psalm. And the Levite tribe was known for its psalms, was known for music, was known for songs. So we can most likely assume that there is either at least a connection with the Levite tribe or that Habakkuk himself is a Levite. Now, we're told that this is an oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now, an oracle, if you go back to the, the Hebrew original meaning, Hebrew word is Massa, not the Formula One driver, uh, but Massa, I think same spelling. It means burden. It's a burden that Habakkuk the prophet has seen. Habakkuk was given a message from God and it's burdened his heart. It's pulled him down. He's weighted by it. This is not a simple message. This is a message that has kept him up at night, a message that has brought turmoil in his heart. But before we find out what the message is from God, let's continue in verse 2. So these are the words of Habakkuk himself. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save. Now instead of starting this revelation from God, this message that was given to his prophet with the message itself, we actually start with Habakkuk's attitude. We start with Habakkuk speaking, not with God speaking. And Habakkuk, if you just read it nice and simply, is saying, how long have I cried? This is not 
just a cry of today. This is not, he's been praying about this situation for a couple of days. This is, God, I have been crying out to you for a long time. How long am I going to have to do this? How much more time am I going to have to use crying out to you? Yet it seems to Habakkuk anyway that God has not heard him, that God has not responded, that he is silent on Habakkuk's prayers. We get this impression when we think of the phrase, how long? This is not a simple question. This is coming from the heart. Habakkuk's in despair at the minute. He's not um, just sitting down for a nice quiet time. He is pleading with God, give me an answer. How long will this go on? But he goes further. He cries out violence. He's pointing out that in his area of Babylon, there is violence all around him. He's pointing out that violence and evil is there. It's so obvious. He can see it. But why is God not saving anyone from the violence? Verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Habakkuk continues to show his heart here. Are you getting the impression here that he is really troubled by what he is seeing? He's saying, God, why have you let me see it? Why can't I be blind to these issues? Why am I the one standing here saying, God, there is violence there. You need to save them. Why am I the one in this situation that knows this? He goes further and says, destruction, violence, strife, contention, they're all there, God. This is sin. It's right in front of your eyes, God. And you can see that he is a troubled man. God isn't responding to him. He's not seeing an answer. He's not seeing judgment. He's not seeing God come into his rightful place and reigning. He is seeing instead sin and evil reigning. And he is struggling to know why God is not answering him. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the things that came up in our weekend away was that we often have moments like that, don't we? We often have moments in our life where we are going through something or we see something. And we go, God, why is this happening? Why didn't you stop it? You just have to look at Aleppo and hospitals being bombed and we're sitting there going, God, why is this evil here? You are so powerful that you can stop this. Why haven't you? But Habakkuk goes even further, verse 4. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous So justice goes forth perverted. Because of all this evil in sin, lawsuits have increased. It's an interesting thing to think about that lawsuits are not a modern thing. It is actually an ancient thing. And this is where people will have had sin against them or see or witness sin. And they bring the people to the courts and say, this man is guilty of X, Y, and Z sin. And a judgment would be passed. And so is God's law as well on a spiritual level, where sin is there, there is a judgment place, and there is a punishment or freedom that is offered. So here, Habakkuk is saying, the law seems paralyzed. Why is it paralyzed? Because the people around him seem to just not care. 
We'll do evil. We'll set our own standards. You can punish us all you like. We're not going to do the punishment. We live by our standards. The courts that are there to try and put some sense together of the law are absolutely worthless in this situation. They can't do anything. There is complete universal rejection of God's law. And Habakkuk is pained by this. And because there's rejection of God's law, justice was never served. And you see Habakkuk's utter desperation when he says that all these evil sinners, all this evil, all this sin, all this destruction has wrapped itself around the righteous and we are sinking. We are being eaten up. Everything is going wrong, God. I don't know about you, but maybe you've hit a point in your life at times where you just think everything is wrong. Everything is going bad. I can't see how the right person wins here. Have you ever known a time where the person who's in the right gets the punishment and the person who's in the wrong seems to get off scot-free? Or when we look on the news and we think, how did that guy get that prison sentence? He should have got more. How did the bakers in Northern Ireland who stood up for their faith end up in a court battle? Why do these things happen? This is what Habakkuk is saying. The righteous seem squashed down. Campbell Morgan, a a renowned writer and theologian, states, Habakkuk was living in the midst of a terrible anarchy. Violence abounded, cruelty was rampant, crime was flagrant, and lust was everywhere. What an utterly depressing and desperate situation. And all this led to Habakkuk falling to his knees and crying out to God, why? What are you doing, God? More than that, Habakkuk says, God, answer me. This is not a man that is angry. This is a man that is desperate for God to speak. So what was God's answer? Verse 5 Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. God replies to Habakkuk, don't just look inside your little bubble. Look at the nations around you. Look further afield. Look across the globe and see beyond the situation you're in. And there you will find me and you will find me acting right now. You see, God has the bigger picture. It's really easy for us to hone in on one problem. But God sees the bigger picture. And God commands Habakkuk here, see the bigger picture. Take one moment, step back and see what I am doing. You see, God operates outside of our little bubbles and can act in all things, at all times, in all locations. And when Habakkuk looks beyond this bubble, he will see what God is doing. Which reminds me of a verse, Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And I love that verse. Because here Habakkuk is saying, God, answer me. Tell me why this is happening. And Ephesians 3.20 says, you've asked me why. Well, guess what? I can do far more than why. I can give you far more than that. I can show you exactly what the Creator God is doing, and I will astound you with it. 
So what's this awesome plan that God has? It's building up to it. You've got a man in desperation and God saying the bigger picture is about to hit you here. Let's look from verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from far, afar off. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come from violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. You grasp where God's master plan is from the start of verse 6. I am raising up the Chaldeans. You see, God's master plan to deal with the wickedness in Babylon, to deal with all this sin, all this evil that Habakkuk is mentioning, is to take an evil nation, an evil army, an army that plunder through, that kill everyone in sight, that steal everything they can and build up their empire based on bloodshed. God's plan is to allow them to attack the people that Habakkuk is talking about. And to get this idea of what this means is the Chaldeans were a fierce marching army. They didn't just sit still. They would destroy everything in their way. They would march from one place to the next without stopping, without breathing. They would kill everyone on sight, seize riches and wealth, and make themselves a conquering nation. And they had become so successful as an army, that they had already by this point defeated Assyria, Nineveh, Haran, and they were ready for the next nation. And their success, we are told, had become their God. They were so proud of themselves. They didn't care if it was evil gain. They just knew they were the best army. They knew they had the riches. They knew they had all power behind them. And they were ready to march on. So what is God's master plan? To use this incredibly evil army to march into Babylon and enact justice by warring and killing all those who dare stand against him. Essentially put in the most simple way, God was going to let evil fight evil. I don't know if you can believe that. When I read that, I thought, really? God is going to let evil fight evil. And I had ideas of looking at Job and where God allows the devil to go for Job. Said, on you go, test them. You see, sometimes God does things that we don't understand. Sometimes even if we study hard, we still won't understand. All we know is that God's plan is written here, just as God asks Habakkuk to write, that he would allow this to happen. Now this certainly wasn't the answer that Habakkuk was looking for. Let's continue verse 12. 
Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One, who shall not die? O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Now Habakkuk begins his response to God's plan by proclaiming who God is, by reminding himself who God is, that God is everlasting, that he is Habakkuk's God, that he is perfect in every way, that he will never die and that he will reign forever. And this singular response here shows how steadfast, how faithful Habakkuk is. He's just been told, I'm going to fight evil with evil. And then he gets back to God and says, yeah, but but you're my God. I don't really get this, but you're still my God. You're still perfect. He, He goes on to recognize that God ordained this judgment, that God himself chose the Chaldeans to judge the Babylonians, that God himself has chosen this judgment. And Habakkuk says, God, I recognize this is your choice. This is not by man, but you are God. But then here we get a wee bit of a switch because that seems quite respectful, doesn't it? God, you are almighty, you're perfect. Yep, I get this. You have chosen this. That seems respectful. That almost seems faithful. But then look at verse 13. You who, are pure, who have purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Now we're getting to Habakkuk's true heart here. Now we're getting to where his issues are. You see, he cannot believe that God would allow this evil to reign. It doesn't compute with him that God is sitting there seeing this evil, yet not stopping it right, in, right now without a fight or an army. You see, Habakkuk's got this image of God on a deck chair up in heaven, watching just letting things pass, idling time by. You see, God gives us a completely different picture, but Habakkuk is just in despair at this evil and going, God, what are you doing sitting back doing nothing? Please, will you do something? In Habakkuk's view, God is taking a little bit of a holiday here. He's put the foot off the gas. He's not doing his duty and he's letting these traitors reign. Verse 14, he goes even further. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net, makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? You see, when God created the earth, He allowed mankind to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, of animals. But what Habakkuk is saying here is, God, you've reversed this. You're making my people like fish of the sea. You're making us the ones that are to be ruled over. You're making that army, the Chaldeans, man and us the fish, and you are letting them rule over us. More than just rule over us, you're letting them drag everything in, kill what they want to kill, and toss to one side what they don't want. And then he finishes God with just another question. God, 
is this to just keep happening? Or in other words, God, when is this going to stop? You see, Habakkuk showed his very heart to God. His heart is despair. His heart says, God, your, your plan is flawed. He's desperate for God to give him answers, but the answers he gets, he's not happy with. He's crying out, and he is very much at the end of his tether. And at the end of chapter 1, we have a man who is in utter despair. And I don't know about you, but I'm sure at times, there are times in our life that we can be at that moment too, where we look to the heavens and we just don't see anything. Or even at times when we get the answer, and it's just simply not the answer we want. And who could blame Habakkuk if right now he decided to just take things into his own hands and go and proclaim what is true on the street corners? Maybe he would just take everything in and go, you know what, God, I'll do your job. You're not doing it, I'll do your job. But just look at chapter 2, verse 1, and with this verse, we'll come towards our concluding points. He says, I will take up my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. You see, Habakkuk, as a prophet, was used to waiting. He would wait upon the Lord to give him his message. Roles have been reversed slightly here. And Habakkuk is now going to his watchtower to wait for God's response to him. You see, Habakkuk has demanded an answer from God. Could you argue that he's even put God on trial? Come on, God. I've shown you your weaknesses. Answer me. He knows that he might even be rebuked for all of this. But he has no more to say. And he is willing to be patient and simply wait upon the Lord. And I don't, when I read that, that didn't compute to me. That this guy is in utter despair, but he is just willing to sit and wait for God's answer. He's not going to act himself, he's not going to read in to too much. He's going to wait for the Creator God to give him an answer. And there's two things I picked up on that. One, he knew God was going to answer. He had complete faith that God was going to answer. He just didn't care how long it would take. He was willing to wait. And two, you show a man who is in complete desperation but in complete love with his God. To say, God, I'm hurting. I don't get this. But I'm going to give you your rightful place as my God, as my Lord, as the perfect one. And I'll wait for you to respond. Now, that's all we'll have time tonight to cover, and we will come to chapters 2 and 3 at a, at a later date. But I just want to go through three very, very quick things about this one chapter that can help us in our week ahead, that can adjust how we think about God, that we can help us live a Christ-filled life. Number one, God wants to know your heart. Proverbs 23, verse 26 says, My son, give me your heart, and let your eyes observe my ways. You see, when we studied Jonah in the summer, Jonah get, gets into a huff at the end, doesn't he? He sits under a tree and he goes, come on God, I'm sick and tired of you. I'm just going to huff here. He showed his heart. 
and God responds. Habakkuk here, however, is equally showing his heart, but he's not showing it in anger. He's not showing it in disgust. He's saying, God, I don't get this. I'm just a human. I'm just a guy. I don't get what's going on here. He's being honest with God. And this is, this is the, one of the biggest lessons we can learn from this passage, is God doesn't want the fake heart. He doesn't want that, I'm fine, I'm doing grand, God, I don't need you. He doesn't want the heart that says, I'm full of worship and praise for you, God, but actually deep inside you're not and you're struggling and you don't want to worship. God sees all of that and he wants you to be honest. God, I am struggling to know where your will is. I'm struggling to know whether I should make that decision or this decision. I look at the news and see what's going on in Aleppo and I don't get how this happens. God wants us to say what is on our heart. He wants us to be clear about where we're struggling. And God will show us great and mighty things that when we show our heart. What does he say in verse 5? When you see, you will see wonder and be astounded. You won't even believe what I am doing. God wants to know your heart. Number two, God has a master plan and perfect timing. Jeremiah 29 verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Do you see how Habakkuk goes to God and says, God, what is your plan? This is happening. What are you going to do? This is happening. Why have you not done something? He's going to God. What is your master plan? What he's questioning here is not necessarily the plan, but the timing, the silence. It's not happening now. But we know from Jeremiah 29 that God has a master plan and it is perfect in every way and it will happen in perfect timing every time. And why is this so important for us to remember? We'll put it this way. How many of you are still waiting for God to answer something? How many of you are still waiting for a situation to resolve? How many are you still waiting to go, what's next for me, God? Even on this weekend away, I was challenging some of the young adults. Are you happy with God's response? You see, God's got a master plan that is better than anything you can produce. And he will respond. He is faithful to respond to our prayers. And he will say, this is my master plan. How many of us go, great, thanks God, I'm going to run with that. Actually, quite often we say, God, mm, can you change that plan? That doesn't quite suit what I'm looking for. God's plan is perfect in every way. And we read that by the end of Habakkuk and we see how God's plan is perfect. And finally, it is good to wait. Third and finally, it's good to wait. Psalm 27, 14. Wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Waiting for God is not a weakness. It is actually strength. It is courage to say, God, I'm useless in this situation. You're God. I'm going to sit on my watchtower and I'm going to wait till you do something. I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to get impatient. I'm just going to sit here, God, and wait. Wait for my creator, God, to speak to me. And this doesn't mean that we don't get called to action. I read something this week that when God speaks and God acts, he acts like a lightning bolt. 
He's not, this, this let's wait for God isn't a let's do nothing, let's sit back. You know, we're talking a lot about our church vision. It's not about sitting on our laurels and just waiting for God. Sometimes we actually do. We have to get going. God has given us clear vision, clear plans. What this means is when you ask of the Lord, when you make requests of the Lord, when you are struggling, when you see evil in this world and you just don't get it, or even when you get an answer that you just simply don't like, take courage, be strong. God is on your side. You see, Habakkuk gets strengthened by that by the end of chapter 3. Who are but mere mortals, the Bible say. You are God. You sustain. You're the tower and refuge. God wants to know your heart. Let's be honest with God. God has a master plan and he has perfect timing. We just simply have to accept that. And it is good to wait because it shows the might and power of our God when we take a back seat and we let him take control and show us his master plan. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your prophet Habakkuk. We thank you for all that you have done in his life. Father, we thank you that it was written down on scrolls and tablets that we can use it, that we can see it, we can learn from it. And Father, I praise you that even when we have a guy here who's in utter despair, that you heard him. That you whispered to him, just, just look for me, I am there. Father, I pray that in this week ahead, when we go into our work situations, maybe we work with all folks that are all unsaved. Maybe we have difficult family lives. Maybe we are in despair at things that are happening in our lives. Father, encourage us to look further afield and to see your hand moving. Father, there are things that are happening in our world that we just simply don't get. We don't understand, Father. We don't understand how evil seems to reign. We don't understand how discrimination seems to reign. We just don't get it, Father. But we know that you are an almighty God, that you have a perfect plan. So, Father, we pray that you help us have faith. You help us not question what you are doing. Instead, Father, place in us a strong faith that knows that you are working this perfect master plan. But Father, above all, I pray that we will become an honest people with you. That we show you our hearts. That we would be willing to give you everything. Father, I praise you for this weekend. I praise you for the young hearts that we have in this church. For their willingness to go away and study your word and worship together. And Father, I pray that through those young folks that we were spending time this weekend, that you will raise up godly men and women. And Father, finally, we pray for Carlisle Baptist. We pray that you strengthen them as a church. You strengthen their numbers. That you be with their pastor as he tries to figure out with his team where is next to go after these floods. And Father, we praise you that we are a global family. And that when we can see numbers increasing in Carlisle Baptist, we can rejoice and say, there are brothers and sisters. Praise be to God for strengthening them. Father, we pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for that, Ross.
Really challenging message, isn't it? In the midst of some hardship that we turn our eyes and be thankful and grateful for all we have, even though there are many enemies against us, and just think about how God has that awesome and perfect plan for our lives. We often just sing a song and leave, don't we? And I really want you just to take the time, just as we finish tonight, just to really engage in, in your worship for this last song and just consider what's been laid on your hearts by God. I love those verses that Rachel just read towards the end of Habakkuk 3. It said, Though the fig tree, fig tree doesn't bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, at nothing, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God my Saviour. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. We have a Sovereign Lord. So as you're sitting there thinking of, yeah, God's got a master plan, but I can't see it, or Lord, I've been waiting for days, weeks, and years, and I don't know where the answer's coming from, we're going to reflect on a song that gives us a chance to be joyful. It reflects on probably the most difficult point of Jesus' life, our sovereign Lord, where he went to the cross for us. It allows us to reflect on all the pictures that we see in our minds of what it was like for him when he was lonely in the garden, where he hung on the cross for us, but allows us to sing with joy of our Saviour's love for us.